BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Book 1, Chapter 23 of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Twenty Three, Machinery in Motion. Mr. Meagles bestirred himself with such prompt activity in the matter of the negotiation with Daniel Doyce, which Clennam had entrusted to him, that he soon brought it into business train, and called on Clennam at nine o'clock one morning to make his report. Doyce is highly gratified by your good opinion, he opened the business by saying, and desires nothing so much as that you should examine the affairs of the works for yourself, and entirely understand them. He has handed me the keys of all his books and papers, here they are, jingling in his pocket, and the only charge he has given me is let mr clennam have the means of putting himself on a perfect equality with me as to knowing whatever i know if it should come to nothing after all he will respect my confidence unless i was sure of that to begin with i should have nothing to do with him and there you see said mr meagles you have daniel doyce all over a very honourable character oh yes to be sure not a doubt of it odd but very honourable very odd though now would you believe clennam said mr meagles with a hearty enjoyment of his friend's eccentricity that i had a whole morning in what's his name yard bleeding heart a whole morning in bleeding heart yard before i could induce him to pursue the subject at all how was that how was that my friend i no sooner mentioned your name in connection with it than he declared off declared off on my account i no sooner mentioned your name clennam than he said that will never do what did he mean by that i asked him no matter meagles that would never do why would it never do "'You'll hardly believe it, Clennam,' said Mr. Meagles, laughing within himself, "'but it came out that it would never do, because you and he, walking down to Twickenham together, had glided into a friendly conversation, in the course of which he had referred to his intention of taking a partner, supposing at the time that you were as firmly and finely settled as St. Paul's Cathedral. "'Whereas,' says he, 
Mr. Clennam might now believe, if I entertained his proposition, that I had a sinister and designing motive in what was open free speech, which I can't bear, says he, which I really am too proud to bear. I should as soon suspect— Of course you would, interrupted Mr. Meagles. And so I told him, but it took a morning to scale that wall, and I doubt if any other man than myself, he likes me of old, could have got his leg over it. Well, Clennam, this business-like obstacle surmounted, he then stipulated that before resuming with you I should look over the books and form my own opinion. I looked over the books and formed my own opinion. Is it on the whole for or against? says he. For, says I. Then, says he, you may now, my good friend, give Mr. Clennam the means of forming his opinion to enable him to do which without bias and with perfect freedom i shall go out of town for a week and he's gone said mr meagles that's the rich conclusion of the thing leaving me said clennam with a high sense i must say of his candour and his oddity mr meagles struck in i should think so it was not exactly the word on clennam's lips but he forbore to interrupt his good-humoured friend. "'And now,' added Mr. Meagles, "'you can begin to look into matters as soon as you think proper. I have undertaken to explain where you may want explanation, but to be strictly impartial, and to do nothing more.' They began their perquisitions in Bleeding Heart Yard that same forenoon. Little peculiarities were easily to be detected by experienced eyes in Mr. Doyce's way of managing his affairs, but they almost always involved some ingenious simplification of a difficulty, and some plain road to the desired end. That his papers were in arrear, and that he stood in need of assistance to develop the capacity of his business, was clear enough. But all the results of his undertakings during many years were distinctly set forth and were ascertainable with ease. Nothing had been done for the purposes of the pending investigation, everything was in its genuine working-dress, and in a certain honest, rugged order. The calculations and entries, in his own hand, of which there were many, were bluntly written, and with no very neat precision, but were always plain and directed straight to the purpose. It occurred to Arthur that a far more elaborate and taking show of business such as the records of the Circumlocution Office, made perhaps, might be far less serviceable, as being meant to be far less intelligible. Three or four days of steady application tended him master of all the facts it was essential to become acquainted with. Mr. Meagles was at hand the whole time, always ready to illuminate any dim place with the bright little safety-lamp belonging to the scales and scoop. Between them, they agreed upon the sum it would be fair to offer for the purchase of a half-share in the business, and then Mr. Meagles unsealed a paper in which Daniel Doyce had noted the amount at which he valued it, which was even something less. Thus, when Daniel came back, he found the affair as good as concluded. "'And I may now avow, Mr. Clennam,' said he, with a cordial shake of the hand, "'that if I had looked—' high and low for a partner, 
I believe I could not have found one more to my mind.' "'I say the same,' said Clennam. "'And I say of both of you,' added Mr. Meagles, "'that you are well matched. You keep him in check, Clennam, with your common sense, and you stick to the works, Dan, with your—' "'Uncommon sense?' suggested Daniel, with his quiet smile. "'You may call it so, if you like, and each of you will be a right hand to the other. Here's my own right hand upon it, as a practical man to both of you.' The purchase was completed within a month. It left Arthur in possession of private personal means not exceeding a few hundred pounds, but it opened to him an active and promising career. The three friends dined together on the auspicious occasion. The factory and the factory wives and children made holiday and dined too. Even Bleeding Heart Yard dined, and was full of meat. Two months had barely gone by in all, when Bleeding Heart Yard had become so familiar with short commons again, that the treat was forgotten there, when nothing seemed new in the partnership but the paint of the inscription on the doorposts, Doyce and Clennam when it appeared even to Clennam himself that he had had the affairs of the firm in his mind for years. The little counting-house reserved for his own occupation was a room of wood and glass at the end of a long low workshop, filled with benches and vices and tools and straps and wheels, which, when they were in gear with the steam-engine, went tearing round as though they had a suicidal mission to grind the business to dust and tear the factory to pieces. A communication of great trap-doors in the floor and roof, with the workshop above and the workshop below, made a shaft of light in this perspective, which brought to Clennam's mind the child's old picture-book, where similar rays were the witnesses of Abel's murder. The noises were sufficiently removed and shut out from the counting-house to blend into a busy hum, interspersed with periodical clinks and thumps. The patient figures at work were swarthy with the filings of iron and steel that danced on every bench and bubbled up through every chink in the planking. The workshop was arrived at by a step-ladder from the outer yard below, where it served as a shelter for the large grindstone where tools were sharpened. The whole had at once a fanciful and practical air in Clennam's eyes, which was a welcome change and as often as he raised them from his first work of getting the array of business documents into perfect order he glanced at these things with a feeling of pleasure in his pursuit that was new to him raising his eyes thus one day he was surprised to see a bonnet labouring up the step-ladder the unusual apparition was followed by another bonnet he then perceived that the first bonnet was on the head of mr f s aunt and that the second bonnet was on the head of flora who seemed to have propelled her legacy up the steep ascent with considerable difficulty. Though not altogether enraptured at the sight of these visitors, Clennam lost no time in opening the counting-house door and extricating them from the workshop, a rescue which was rendered the more necessary by Mr. F.'s aunt already stumbling over some impediment and menacing steam-power as an institution with a stony reticule she carried. "'Good gracious! Arthur! I should say, Mr. Clennam, far more proper. The climb we've had to get up here and however to get down again without a fire-escape, and Mr. Ife's aunt slipping through the steps and bruised all over, and you and the machinery and foundry way to only think, and never told us.' Thus Flora, out of breath. Meanwhile Mr. F.'s aunt rubbed her esteemed insteps with her umbrella, and vindictively glared. 
most unkind never to have come back to see us since that day though naturally it was not to be expected that there should be any attraction at our house and you were much more pleasantly engaged that's pretty certain and is she fair or dark blue eyes or black i wonder not that i expect you should be anything but a perfect contrast to me in all particulars for i am a disappointment as i very well know and you are quite right to be devoted no doubt though what i am saying arthur never mind i, I hardly know myself good gracious by this time he had placed chairs for them in the counting-house as flora dropped into hers she bestowed the old look upon him and to think of doyce and clennam and who doyce can be said flora delightful man no doubt and married perhaps or perhaps a daughter now has he really then one understands the partnership and sees it all don't tell me anything about it for i know i've no claim to ask the question the golden chain that once was forged being snapped and very proper flora put her hand tenderly on his and gave him another of the youthful glances dear arthur force of habit mr clennam every way more delicate and adapted to existing circumstances i must beg to be excused for taking the liberty of this intrusion but i thought i might so far presume upon old times for ever faded never more to bloom as to call with mr f s aunt to congratulate and offer best wishes a great deal superior to china not to be denied much nearer though higher up i am very happy to see you said clennam and i thank you flora very much for your kind remembrance more than i can say it myself at any rate returned flora for i might have been dead and buried twenty distinct times over and no doubt whatever should have been before you had genuinely remembered me or anything like it in spite of which one last remark i wish to make one last explanation i wish to offer my dear mrs finching arthur remonstrated in alarm oh not that disagreeable name say flora flora is it worth troubling yourself afresh to enter into explanations i assure you none are needed i am satisfied i am perfectly satisfied a diversion was occasioned here by mr f s aunt making the following inexorable and awful statement there's milestones on the dover road with such mortal hostility towards the human race did she discharge this missile that clennam was quite at a loss how to defend himself the rather, as he had been already perplexed in his mind, by the honour of a visit from this venerable lady, when it was plain she held him in the utmost abhorrence, he could not but look at her with disconcertment, as she sat breathing bitterness and scorn, and staring leagues away. Flora, however, received the remark as if it had been of a most apposite and agreeable nature, approvingly observing aloud that Mr. F.'s aunt had a great deal of spirit stimulated either by this compliment or by her burning indignation that illustrious woman then added let him meet it if he can and with a rigid movement of her stony reticule an appendage of great size and of a fossil appearance indicated that clennam was the unfortunate person at whom the challenge was hurled one last remark resumed flora i was going to say i wish to make one last explanation i wish to offer mr f s aunt and myself would not have intruded on business hours mr f having been in business and though the wine trade still business is equally business call it what you will and business habits are just the same as witness mr f himself who had his slippers always on at the mat at ten minutes before six in the afternoon and his boots inside the fender at ten minutes before eight in the morning to the moment in all weathers light or dark would not therefore have intruded without a motive which being kindly meant it may be hoped will be kindly taken arthur mr clennam far more proper even doyce and clennam probably more business-like pray say nothing in the way of apology arthur entreated you are always welcome 
"'Very polite of you to say so, Arthur. Oh, cannot remember, Mr. Clennam, until the word is out. Such is the habit of times for ever fled, and so true it is that often the stilly night ere slumber's chain has bound people. Fond memories brings the light of other days around people. Very polite, but more polite than true, I'm afraid, for to go into the machinery business without so much as sending a line or a card to papa. I don't say me, though there was a time but that is past, and stern reality is now, my gracious, never mind. Oh, does not look like it, you must confess.' Even Flora's commas seemed to have fled on this occasion. She was so much more disjointed and voluble than in the preceding interview. "'Though, indeed,' she hurried on, "'nothing else is to be expected, and why should it be expected? And if it's not to be expected, why should it be? And I am far from blaming you or any one. When your mamma and my papa worried us to death, and severed the golden bowl—I mean, bond, but I dare say you know what I mean, and if you don't, you don't lose much, and care just as little, I will venture to add—when they severed the golden bond that bound us, and threw us into fits of crying on the sofa, nearly choked at least myself, everything was changed, and in giving my hand to Mr. F—I know I did so with my eyes open, but he was so very unsettled and in such low spirits, that he had distractedly alluded to the river, if not oil of something from the chemists, and I did it for the best. "'My good Flora, we settled that before. It was all quite right.' "'It's perfectly clear you think so,' returned Flora, "'for you take it very coolly. If I hadn't known it to be China, I should have guessed myself the polar regions. Dear Mr. Clennam, you're right, however, and I cannot blame you. But as to Doyce at Clennam Papa's property being about here, we heard it from Panks, and but for him we never should have heard one word about it, I am satisfied.' "'No, no, don't say that.' "'What nonsense! Not to say it, Arthur. Doyce and Clennam. Easier and less trying to me than Mr. Clennam, when I know it, and you know it, too, and can't deny it. But I do deny it, Flora. I should soon have made you a friendly visit.' "'Ah!' said Flora, tossing her head. "'I dare say.' and she gave him another of the old looks. However, when Panks told us, I made up my mind that Mr. F.'s aunt and I would come and call, because when Papa, which was before that, happened to mention her name to me, and to say that you were interested in her, I said at the moment, Good gracious, why not have her here, then, when there's anything to do, instead of putting it out?' "'When you say her,' observed Clennam, by this time pretty well bewildered, "'do you mean Mr. F.'s—' "'My goodness, Arthur, uh, Doyce and Clennam, really easier to me with old remembrances. Who ever heard of Mr. F.'s aunt doing needlework and going out by the day?' "'Going out by the day? Do you speak of Little Dorrit?' "'Why, yes, of course,' returned Flora. "'And of all the strangest names I ever heard the strangest, like a place down in the country with a turnpike, or a favourite pony, or a puppy, or a bird, or something from a seed-shop to be put in a garden or a flower-pot and come up speckled.' "'Then Flora—' said Arthur, with a sudden interest in the conversation. "'Mr. Casby was so kind as to mention Little Dorrit to you, was he? What did he say?' "'Oh, you know what Papa is,' rejoined Flora, "'and how aggravatingly he sits looking beautiful and turning his thumbs over and over one another till he makes me giddy. If one keeps one's eyes upon him, he said, "'When we were talking of you, I don't know who began the subject, Arthur, Doyce, but I'm sure it wasn't me, at least I hope not, but you really must excuse my confessing more on that point.' "'Certainly.' said Arthur, by all means. "'You are very ready,' pouted Flora, coming to a sudden stop in a captivating bashfulness, "'that I must admit, Papa said you had spoken of her in an earnest way, and I said what I have told you, and that's all.' "'That's all,' said Arthur, a little disappointed. "'Except that when Panks told us of your having embarked in this business, and with difficulty persuaded us that it was really you, I said to Mr. F.'s aunt, then we would come and ask you if it would be agreeable to all parties that she should be engaged at our house when required, for I know she often goes to your mamma's, and I know that your mamma has a very touchy temper, Arthur, at Doyce and Clennam, or I never might have married Mr. F., and I might have been at this hour, but I am running into nonsense.' 
"'It was very kind of you, Flora, to think of this.' Poor Flora rejoined with a plain sincerity which became her better than her youngest glances, that she was glad he thought so. She said it with so much heart that Clennam would have given a great deal to buy his old character of her on the spot, and throw it and the mermaid away for ever. "'I think, Flora,' he said, "'that the employment you can give little Dorrit, and the kindness you can show her—' "'Yes, and I will,' said Flora quickly. "'I am sure of it.' will be a great assistant and support to her. I do not feel that I have the right to tell you what I know of her, for I acquired the knowledge confidentially, and under circumstances that bind me to silence. But I have an interest in the little creature, and a respect for her that I cannot express to you. Her life has been one of such trial and devotion, and such quiet goodness, as you can scarcely imagine. I can hardly think of her, far less speak of her, without feeling moved. Let that feeling represent what I could tell you, and commit her to your friendliness with my thanks." Once more he put out his hand frankly to poor Flora. Once more poor Flora couldn't accept it frankly, found it worth nothing openly, must make the old intrigue and mystery of it. As much to her own enjoyment as to his dismay, she covered it with a corner of her shawl as she took it. Then, looking towards the glass front of the counting-house, and seeing two figures approaching, she cried with infinite relish, "'Papa! Hush! Arthur! For mercy's sake!' and tottered back to her chair, with an amazing imitation of being in danger of swooning, in the dread surprise and maidenly flutter of her spirits. The patriarch, meanwhile, came inanely beaming towards the counting-house in the wake of Panks. Panks opened the door for him, towed him in, and retired to his own moorings in a corner. "'I heard from Flora,' said the patriarch, with his benevolent smile, "'that she was coming to call, coming to call, and being out I thought I'd come also, thought I'd come also.' The benign wisdom he infused into this declaration, not of itself profound, by means of his blue eyes, his shining head, and his long white hair, was most impressive. It seemed worth putting down among the noblest sentiments enunciated by the best of men. Also, when he said to Clennam, seating himself in the proffered chair, "'And you are in a new business, Mr. Clennam. I wish you well, sir, I wish you well,' he seemed to have done benevolent wonders. "'Mrs. Finching has been telling me, sir,' said Arthur, after making his acknowledgments, the relict of the late Mr. F., meanwhile, protesting, with a gesture, against his use of that respectable name, that she hopes occasionally to employ the young needlewoman you recommended to my mother, for which I have been thanking her. The patriarch, turning his head in a lumbering way towards Panks, that assistant put up the notebook in which he had been absorbed, and took him in tow. "'You didn't recommend her, you know,' said Panks. "'How could you?' You knew nothing about her. You didn't. The name was mentioned to you, and you passed it on. That's what you did." "'Well,' said Clennam, "'as she justifies any recommendation, it is much the same thing.' "'You're glad she turns out well,' said Panks. "'But it wouldn't have been your fault if she turned out ill. Look at it's not yours, as it is, and the blame wouldn't have been yours, as it might have been. You gave no guarantee. You knew nothing about her.' "'You are not acquainted, then?' 
said Arthur, hazarding a random question, "'with any of her family?' "'Acquainted with any of her family?' returned Pancks. "'How should you be acquainted with any of her family? You never heard of them. You can't be acquainted with people you never heard of, can you? You should think not.' All this time the patriarch sat serenely smiling, nodding or shaking his head benevolently, as the case required. "'As to being a reference,' said Pancks, "'you know, in a general way, what being a reference means. It's all your eye, that is. Look at your tenants down the yard here. They'd all be references for one another, if you'd let them. What would be the good of letting them? It's no satisfaction to be done by two men instead of one. One's enough. A person who can't pay gets another person who can't pay to guarantee that he can pay. Like a person with two wooden legs getting another person with two wooden legs to guarantee that he has got two natural legs. He don't make either of them able to do a walking match. And four wooden legs are more troublesome to you than two, when you don't want any." Mr. Pancks concluded by blowing off that steam of his. A momentary silence that ensued was broken by Mr. F.'s aunt, who had been sitting upright in a cataleptic state since her last public remark. She now underwent a violent twitch, calculated to produce a startling effect on the nerves of the uninitiated, and with the deadliest animosity observed. "'You can't make a head and brains out of a brass knob with nothing in it. You can't do it when your Uncle George was living, much less when he's dead.' Mr. Pancks was not slow to reply with his usual calmness. "'Indeed, ma'am. Bless my soul. I'm surprised to hear it.' Despite his presence of mind, however, the speech of Mr. F.'s aunt produced a depressing effect on the little assembly. Firstly, because it was impossible to disguise that Clennam's unoffending head was the particular temple of reason depreciated, and secondly, because nobody ever knew on these occasions whose Uncle George was referred to, or what spectral presence might be invoked under that appellation. Therefore Flora said, though still not without a certain boastfulness and triumph in her legacy, that Mr. F.'s aunt was very lively to-day, and she thought they had better go. But Mr. F.'s aunt proved so lively as to take the suggestion in unexpected dudgeon and declare that she would not go, adding, with several injurious expressions, that if he, too evidently meaning Clennam, wanted to get rid of her, let him chuck her out of window, and urgently expressing her desire to see him perform that ceremony. In this dilemma Mr. Pancks, whose resources appeared equal to any emergency in the patriarchal waters, slipped on his hat slipped out at the counting-house door, and slipped in again a moment afterwards, with an artificial freshness upon him, as if he had been in the country for some weeks. "'Why, bless my heart, ma'am,' said Mr. Pancks, rubbing up his hair in great astonishment, "'is that you? How do you do, ma'am? You're looking charming to-day. I'm delighted to see you. Favour me with your arm, ma'am. We'll have a little walk together, you and me, if you'll honour me with your company.' and so escorted Mr. F.'s aunt down the private staircase of the counting-house with great gallantry and success. The patriarchal Mr. Casby then rose with the air of having done it himself, and blandly followed, leaving his daughter, as she followed in her turn, to remark to her former lover in a distracted whisper, which she very much enjoyed, that they had drained the cup of life to the dregs, and further to hint mysteriously that the late Mr. F. was at the bottom of it. Alone again, Clennam became a prey to his old doubts in reference to his mother and little Dorrit, and revolved the old thoughts and suspicions. They were all in his mind, 
bending themselves with the duties he was mechanically discharging, when a shadow on his papers caused him to look up for the cause. The cause was Mr. Pancks. With his hat thrown back upon his ears, as if his wiry prongs of hair had darted up like springs and cast it off, with his jet-black beads of eyes inquisitively sharp, with the fingers of his right hand in his mouth, that he might bite the nails, and with the fingers of his left hand in reserve in his pocket for another course. Mr. Pancks cast his shadow through the glass upon the books and papers. Mr. Pancks asked, with a little inquiring twist of his head, if he might come in again. Clennam replied with a nod of his head in the affirmative. Mr. Pancks worked his way in, came alongside the desk, made himself fast by leaning his arms upon it, and started conversation with a puff and a snort. "'Mr. F.'s aunt is appeased, I hope,' said Clennam. "'All right, sir,' said Pancks. "'I am so unfortunate as to have awakened a strong animosity in the breast of that lady,' said Clennam. "'Do you know why?' "'Does she know why?' said Pancks. "'I suppose not.' "'I suppose not,' said Pancks. He took out his notebook, opened it, shut it, dropped it into his hat, which was beside him on the desk, and looked in it as it lay at the bottom of the hat, all with a great appearance of consideration. "'Mr. Clennam,' he then began, "'I am in want of information, sir.' "'Connected with this firm?' asked Clennam. "'No,' said Pancks. "'With what then, Mr. Pancks? That is to say, assuming that you want it of me?' "'Yes, sir, yes, I want it of you,' said Pancks. "'If I could persuade you to furnish it—' A, B, C, D, D, A, D, E, D, I, D, O. Dictionary order. Dorrit. That's the name, sir. Mr. Pancks blew off his peculiar noise again, and fell to at his right-hand nails. Arthur looked searchingly at him. He returned the look. I don't understand you, Mr. Pancks. That's the name I want to know about. And what do you want to know? Whatever you can, and will tell me. This comprehensive summary of his desires was not discharged without some heavy labouring on the part of Mr. Pank's machinery. "'This is a singular visit, Mr. Pank's. It strikes me as rather extraordinary that you should come with such an object to me.' "'It may be all extraordinary altogether,' returned Pank's. "'It may be out of the ordinary course, and yet be business. In short, it is business. I am a man of business.' What business have I in this present world except to stick to business? No business." With his former doubt whether this dry, hard personage were quite in earnest, Clennam again turned his eyes attentively upon his face. It was as scrubby and dingy as ever, and as eager and quick as ever, and he could see nothing lurking in it that was at all expressive of a latent mockery that had seemed to strike upon his ear in the voice. "'Now,' said Pancks, to put this business on its own footing, it's not my proprietor's. Do you refer to Mr. Casby as your proprietor? Pancks nodded. My proprietor. Put a case. Say, at my proprietor's, I hear name. Name of young person Mr. Clennam wants to serve. Say, name first mentioned to my proprietor by Plornish in the yard. Say, I go to Plornish. Say, I ask Plornish, as a matter of business, for information. Say, Plornish, though six weeks in arrear to my proprietor, declines. Say, Mrs. Plornish declines. Say, both refer to Mr. Clennam. Put the case. Well, 
"'Well, sir,' returned Pancks, "'say I come to him. Say, here I am.' With those prongs of hair sticking up all over his head, and his breath coming and going very hard and short, the busy Pancks fell back a step, in tug metaphor, took half a turn astern, as if to show his dingy hull complete, then forged ahead again, and directed his quick glance by turns into his hat where his notebook was, and into Clennam's face. "'Mr. Pancks, not to trespass on your grounds of mystery, I will be as plain with you as I can. Let me ask two questions. First—' "'All right,' said Pancks, holding up his dirty forefinger with his broken nail. "'I see. What's your motive?' "'Exactly.' "'Motive,' said Pancks. "'Good. Nothing to do with my proprietor. Not stateable at present. Ridiculous to state at present. But good desiring to serve your young person, name of Dorrit," said Pancks, with his forefinger still up as a caution. Better admit motive to be good. Secondly, and lastly, what do you want to know? Mr. Pancks fished up his notebook before the question was put, and buttoning it with care in an inner breast pocket, and looking straight at Clennam all the time, replied with a pause and a puff, "'I want supplementary information of any sort.' Clennam could not withhold a smile, as the panting little steam-tug, so useful to that unwieldy ship, the Casby, waited on and watched him, as if it were seeking an opportunity of running in and rifling him of all he wanted, before he could resist its manoeuvres. Though there was that, in Mr. Pank's eagerness, too, which awakened many wondering speculations in his mind. After a little consideration, he resolved to supply Mr. Pank's with such leading information as it was in his power to impart him, well knowing that Mr. Pank's, if he failed in his present research, was pretty sure to find other means of getting it. He therefore, first requesting Mr. Pank's to remember his voluntary declaration that his proprietor had no part in the disclosure, and that his own intentions were good, two declarations which that coley little gentleman with the greatest ardour repeated, openly told him that, as to the Dorrit lineage, or former place of habitation, he had no information to communicate, and that his knowledge of the family did not extend beyond the fact that it appeared to be now reduced to five members, namely, to two brothers, of whom one was single, and one a widower with three children. The ages of the whole family he made known to Mr. Pancks, as nearly as he could guess at them, and finally he described to him the position of the father of the Marshalsea, and the course of time and events through which he had become invested with that character. To all this Mr. Pancks, snorting and blowing in a more and more portentous manner as he became more interested, listened with great attention, appearing to derive the most agreeable sensations from the painfullest parts of the narrative, and particularly to be quite charmed by the account of William Dorrit's long imprisonment. "'In conclusion, Mr. Pancks,' said Arthur, I have but to say this. I have reasons beyond a personal regard for speaking as little as I can of the Dorrit family, particularly at my mother's house. Mr. Pancks nodded. And for knowing as much as I can. So devoted a man of business as you are, eh? For Mr. Pancks had suddenly made that blowing effort with unusual force. It's nothing, said Pancks. "'So devoted a man of business as yourself has a perfect understanding of a fair bargain. I wish to make a fair bargain with you, that you shall enlighten me, 
concerning the Dorrit family, when you have it in your power, as I have enlightened you. It may not give you a very flattering idea of my business habits, that I failed to make my terms beforehand, continued Clennam, but I prefer to make them a point of honour. I have seen so much business done on sharp principles that, to tell you the truth, Mr. Pancks, I am tired of them. Mr. Pancks laughed. "'He's a bargain, sir,' said he. "'You shall find me stick to it.' After that, he stood a little while looking at Clennam, and biting his ten nails all round, evidently while he fixed in his mind what he had been told, and went over it carefully, before the means for supplying a gap in his memory should be no longer at hand. "'It's all right,' he said at last, "'and now I wish you good day, as it's collecting day in the yard. By the by, though, a lame foreigner with a stick. Ay, ay, you do take a reference sometimes, I see,' said Clennam. "'When he can pay, sir,' replied Pancks, "'take all you can, and keep back all you can't be forced to give up. That's business. The lame foreigner with the stick wants a top room down the yard. Is he good for it?' "'I am,' said Clennam. "'I will answer for him.' "'That's enough.' "'What I must have a bleeding art yard,' said Pancks, making a note of the case in his book, "'is my bond. I want my bond, you see. Pay up or produce your property. That's the watchword down the yard. The lame foreigner with the stick represented that you sent him, but he could represent as far as that goes that the great mogul sent him. He was in the hospital, I believe.' "'Yes, through having met with an accident. He is only just now discharged. "'It's pauperizing a man, sir, I've been shown.' "'to let him into a hospital?' said Pancks, and again blew off that remarkable sound. "'I have been shown so, too,' said Clennam coldly. Mr. Pancks, being by that time quite ready for a start, got under steam in a moment, and, without any other signal or ceremony, was snorting down the stepladder and working into Bleeding Heart Yard before he seemed to be well out of the counting-house. Throughout the remainder of the day, Bleeding Heart Yard was in consternation as the grim Pancks cruised in it, haranguing the inhabitants on their backslidings in respect of payment, demanding his bond, breathing notices to quit and executions, running down defaulters, sending a swell of terror on before him, and leaving it in his wake. Knots of people, impelled by a fatal attraction, lurked outside any house in which he was known to be, listening for fragments of his discourses to the inmates and when he was rumoured to be coming down the stairs often could not disperse so quickly but that he would be prematurely in among them demanding their own arrears and rooting them to the spot throughout the remainder of the day mr pancks's what were they up to and what did they mean by it sounded all over the yard mr pancks wouldn't hear of excuses wouldn't hear of complaints wouldn't hear of repairs wouldn't hear of anything but unconditional money down perspiring and puffing and darting about in eccentric directions and becoming hotter and dingier every moment he lashed the tide of the yard into a most agitated and turbid state it had not settled down into calm water again full two hours after he had been seen fuming away on the horizon at the top of the steps there were several small assemblages of the bleeding hearts at the popular points of meeting in the yard that night among whom it was universally agreed that Mr. Pancks was a hard man to have to do with, and that it was much to be regretted, so it was, that a gentleman like Mr. Casby should put his rents in his hands, and never know him in his true light. 
for, said the bleeding hearts, if a gentleman with that head of hair and them eyes took his rents into his own hands, ma'am, there would be none of this worriting and wearing, and things would be very different. At which identical evening hour and minute the patriarch, who had floated serenely through the yard in the forenoon, before the hurrying began, with the express design of getting up this trustfulness in his shining bumps and silken locks, at which identical hour and minute that first-rate humbug of a thousand guns was heavily floundering in the little dock of his exhausted tug at home, and was saying, as he turned his thumbs, "'A very bad day's work, Panks. Very bad day's work, it seems to me, sir.' and i must insist on making this observation forcibly in justice to myself that you ought to have got much more money much more money end of book 1 chapter 23book 1 chapter 24 of little dorrit this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Twenty Four, Fortune Telling. Little Dorrit received a call that same evening from Mr. Plornish, who, having intimated that he wished to speak to her privately in a series of coughs so very noticeable as to favour the idea that her father, as regarded her seamstress occupation, was an illustration of the axiom that there are no such stone-blind men as those who will not see, obtained an audience with her on the common staircase outside the door. "'There's been a lady at our place to-day, Miss Dorrit,' Plornish growled, "'and another one along with her, as is a old wixen, if ever I met with such, the way she snapped a person's head off, dear me!" The mild Plornish was at first quite unable to get his mind away from Mr. F.'s aunt. "'For,' said he, to excuse himself, "'she is, I do assure you, the winegariest party.' At length, by a great effort, he detached himself from the subject sufficiently to observe, but she's neither here nor there, just at present. The other lady, she's Mr. Casby's daughter. And if Mr. Casby ain't well off, none better. It ain't through any fault of Panks. For, as to Panks, he does. He really does. He does indeed. Mr. Plornish, after his usual manner, was a little obscure, but conscientiously emphatic. "'And what she come to our place for,' he pursued, "'was to leave word that if Miss Dorrit would step up to that card, "'which it's Mr. Casby's house, that is, "'and Panks, he has office at the back, where he really does, beyond belief, "'she will be glad for to engage her. "'She was a old and a dear friend,' she said, particular, of Mr. Clennam, and hoped for to prove herself a useful friend to his friend. Them was her words. Wishing to know whether Miss Dorrit could come to-morrow morning, I said I would see you, Miss, and inquire, and look round there to-night to say yes, 
or if you was engaged to-morrow when i can go to-morrow thank you said little dorrit this is very kind of you but you're always kind mr plornish with a modest disavowal of his merits opened the room door for her readmission and followed her in with such an exceedingly bald pretence of not having been out at all that her father might have observed it without being very suspicious in his affable unconsciousness however he took no heed plornish after a little conversation in which he blended his former duty as a collegian with his present privilege as a humble outside friend qualified again by his lower state as a plasterer took his leave making the tour of the prison before he left and looking on at a game of skittles with the mixed feelings of an old inhabitant who had his private reasons for believing that it might be his destiny to come back again early in the morning little dorrit leaving maggie in high domestic trust set off for the patriarchal tent she went by the iron bridge though it cost her a penny and walked more slowly in that part of her journey than in any other at five minutes before eight her hand was on the patriarchal knocker which was quite as high as she could reach she gave mrs finching's card to the young woman who opened the door and the young woman told her that miss flora flora having on her return to the parental roof reinvested herself with the title under which she had lived there was not yet out of her bedroom but she was to please to walk up into miss flora's sitting-room she walked up into miss flora's sitting-room as in duty bound and there found a breakfast-table comfortably laid for two with a supplementary tray upon it laid for one the young woman disappearing for a few moments returned to say that she was to please to take a chair by the fire and to take off her bonnet and make herself at home but little dorrit being bashful and not used to make herself at home on such occasions felt at a loss how to do it so she was still sitting near the door with her bonnet on when flora came in in a hurry half an hour afterwards flora was so sorry to have kept her waiting and good gracious why did she sit out there in the cold when she had expected to find her by the fire reading the paper and hadn't that heedless girl given her the message then and had she really been in her bonnet all this time and pray for goodness sake let flora take it off flora taking it off in the best-natured manner in the world was so struck with the face disclosed that she said why what a good little thing you are my dear and pressed her face between her hands like the gentlest of women it was the word and the action of a moment little dorrit had hardly time to think how kind it was when flora dashed at the breakfast-table full of business and plunged over head and ears into loquacity really so sorry that i should happen to be late on this morning of all mornings because my intention and my wish was to be ready to meet you when you came in and to say that any one that interested arthur clennam half so much must interest me and that i gave you the heartiest welcome and was so glad instead of which they never called me and, and there i still am snoring i dare say if the truth was known and if you don't like either cold fowl or hot boiled ham which many people don't i dare say besides jews and there's our scruples of conscience which we must all respect though i must say i wish they had them equally strong when they sell us false articles for real at certainly ain't worth the money i shall be quite vexed said flora little dorrit thanked her and said shyly bread and butter and tea was all she usually oh nonsense my dear child i can never hear of that said flora turning on the urn in the most reckless manner and making herself wink by splashing hot water into her eyes as she bent down to look into the teapot 
you're coming here on the footing of a friend and companion you know if you'll let me take that liberty and i should be ashamed of myself indeed if you could come here upon any other besides which arthur clennam spoke in such terms you are tired my dear no ma'am you turn so pale you have walked too far before breakfast and i dare say live a great way off and ought to have had a ride said flora dear dear is there anything that would do you good indeed i am quite well ma'am i thank you again and again but i am quite well then take your tea at once i beg said flora and this wing of fowl and bit of ham don't mind me or wait for me because i always carry in this tray myself to mr f s aunt who breakfast in bed and a charming old lady too and very clever portrait of mr f behind the door and very like though too much forehead and as to a pillar with a marble pavement and balustrades and a mountain i never saw him near it or not likely in the wine trade excellent man but not at all in that way little dorrit glanced at the portrait very imperfectly following the references to that work of art mr f was so devoted to me that he never could bear me out of his sight said flora though of course i am unable to say how long that might have lasted if he hadn't been cut short while i was a new broom worthy man but not poetical manly prose but not romance little dorrit glanced at the portrait again the artist had given it a head that would have been in an intellectual point of view top-heavy for shakespeare romance however flora went on busily arranging mr f s aunt's toast as i openly said to mr f when he proposed to me and you will be surprised to hear that he proposed seven times once in a hackney-coach once in a boat once in a pew once in a donkey at tunbridge wells and the rest on his knees romance was fled with the early days of arthur clennam our parents tore us asunder we became marble and stern reality usurped the throne mr f said very much to his credit that he was perfectly aware of it and even preferred that state of things accordingly the word was spoken the fiat went forth and such is life you see my dear and yet we do not break but bend pray make a good breakfast while i go in with the tray she disappeared, leaving little Dorrit to ponder over the meaning of her scattered words. She soon came back again, and at last began to take her own breakfast, talking all the while. "'You see, my dear,' said Flora, measuring out a spoonful or two of some brown liquid that smelt like brandy, and putting it into her tea, "'I am obliged to be careful to follow the directions of my medical man, though the flavour is anything but agreeable, being a poor creature, and it may be have never recovered the shock received in youth from too much giving way to crying in the next room when separated from arthur have you known him long as soon as little dorrit comprehended that she had been asked this question for which time was necessary the galloping pace of her new patroness having left her far behind she answered that she had known mr clennam ever since his return to be sure you couldn't have known him before unless you had been in china or had corresponded neither of which is likely returned flora for travelling people usually get more or less mahogany and you are not at all so and as to corresponding what about that's very true unless tea so it was at his mother's was it really that you knew him first highly sensible and firm but dreadfully severe ought to be the mother of the man in the iron mask mrs clennam has been very kind to me said little dorrit really i am sure i am glad to hear it because as arthur's mother it's naturally pleasant to my feelings to have a better opinion of her than i had before though what she thinks of me when i run on as i am certain to do and she sits glowering at me like fate in a go-cart oh shocking comparison really invalid not her fault i never know or can imagine shall i find my work anywhere ma'am asked little dorrit looking timidly about can i get it you industrious little fairy returned flora taking in another cup of tea another of the doses prescribed by her medical man there's not the slightest hurry and it's better that we should begin by being confidential about our mutual friend too cold a word for me at least i don't mean that very proper expression mutual friend than become through mere formalities not you but me like the spartan boy with the fox biting him which i hope you'll excuse my bringing up for all of the tiresome boys that will go tumbling into every sort of company that boys are tiresome little dorrit 
her face very pale, sat down again to listen. "'Hadn't I better work the while?' she asked. "'I can work and attend, too. I would rather, if I may.' Her earnestness was so expressive of her being uneasy without her work, that Flora answered, "'Well, my dear, whatever you like best,' and produced a basket of white handkerchiefs. Little Dorrit gladly put it by her side, took out her little pocket housewife, threaded the needle, and began to hem. "'What nimble fingers you have!' said Flora. "'But are you sure you are well?' "'Oh, yes, indeed.' Flora put her feet upon the fender, and settled herself for a thorough good romantic disclosure. She started off at score, tossing her head, sighing in the most demonstrative manner, making a great deal of use of her eyebrows, and occasionally, but not often, glancing at the quiet face that bent over the work. "'You must know, my dear,' said Flora, "'but that I have no doubt you know already, not only because I have already thrown it out in a general way, but because I feel I carry it stamped in burning what's-his-names upon my brow, that before I was introduced to the late Mr. F., I had been engaged to Arthur Clennam. Mr. Clennam, in public, where reserve is necessary, Arthur here. We are all in all to one another. It was the morning of life, it was bliss, it was frenzy, it was everything else of that sort in the highest degree. When rent to sunder, we turned to stone, in rich capacity Arthur went to China, and I became the statue bride of the late Mr. F.' Flora, uttering these words in a deep voice, enjoyed herself immensely. "'To paint,' said she, "'the emotions of that morning when all was marble within, and Mr. F.'s aunt followed in the glass coach, which it stands to reason must have been in shameful repair, it never could have broken down two streets from the house, and Mr. F.'s aunt brought home like the fifth of November in a rush-bottomed chair. I will not attempt suffice it to say that the hollow form of breakfast took place in the dining-room downstairs, that papa, partaking too freely of pickled salmon, was ill for weeks, and Mr. F. and myself went upon a continental tour to Calais, where the people fought for us on the pier until they separated us, though not for ever that was not yet to be.' The statue bride, hardly pausing for breath, went on, with the greatest complacency, in a rambling manner sometimes incidental to flesh and blood. "'I will draw a veil over that dreamy life. Mr. F. was in good spirits. His appetite was good. He liked the cookery. He considered the wine weak, but palatable, and all was well. We returned to the immediate neighbourhood of number 30 Little Gosling Street, London Docks, and settling down, ere we had yet fully detected the housemaid in setting the feathers out of the spare bed, gout flying upward, soared with Mr. F. to another sphere. His relict with a glance at his portrait, shook her head and wiped her eyes. "'I revere the memory of Mr. F. as an estimable man and most indulgent husband, only necessary to mention asparagus, and it appeared, or to hint at any little delicate thing to drink, and it came like magic in a pint bottle. It was not ecstasy, but it was comfort. I returned to papa's roof, and lived secluded, if not happy, during some years, until one day papa came smoothly blundering in, and said that Arthur Clennam awaited me below. I went below, and found him, asked me not what I found him, except that he was still unmarried, still unchanged.' The dark mystery with which Flora now enshrouded herself might have stopped other fingers and the nimble fingers that worked near her. They worked on without a pause, and the busy head bent over them, watching the stitches. "'Ask me not,' said Flora, "'if I love him still, or if he still loves me, or what the end is to be, or when. We are surrounded by watchful eyes, and it may be that we are destined to pine asunder. It may be never more to be reunited. Not a word, not a breath, not a look to betray us all, must be as secret as the tomb. Wonder not, therefore, that even if I should seem comparatively cold to Arthur, or Arthur should seem comparatively cold to me, we have fatal reasons. It is enough if we understand them. Hush!' All of which— Flora said, with so much headlong vehemence, as if she really believed it. There was not much doubt that when she worked herself into full mermaid condition, she did actually believe whatever she said in it. "'Hush!' repeated Flora. 
I have now told you all. Confidence is established between us. Hush! For Arthur's sake, I will always be a friend to you, my dear girl, and in Arthur's name you may always rely upon me." The nimble fingers laid aside the work, and the little figure rose and kissed her hand. "'You are very cold,' said Flora, changing to her own natural, kind-hearted manner, and gaining greatly by the change. "'Don't work to-day. I am sure you are not well. I am sure you are not strong.' "'It is only that I feel a little overcome by your kindness, and by Mr. Clennam's kindness, in confiding me to one he has known and loved so long.' "'Well, really, my dear,' said Flora, who had a decided tendency to be always honest when she gave herself time to think about it, "'it's as well to leave that alone for now, for I couldn't undertake to say after all, but it doesn't signify. Lie down a little while.' "'I have always been strong enough to do what I want to do, and I shall be quite well directly,' returned Little Dorrit, with a faint smile. "'You have overpowered me with gratitude, that's all. If I keep near the window for a moment, I shall be quite myself.' Flora opened a window, and sat her in a chair by it, and considerately retired to her former place. It was a windy day, and the air stirring on Little Dorrit's face— soon brightened it. In a very few minutes she returned to her basket of work, and her nimble fingers were as nimble as ever. Quietly pursuing her task, she asked Flora if Mr. Clennam had told her where she lived. When Flora replied in the negative, Little Dorrit said that she understood why he had been so delicate, but that she felt sure he would approve of her confiding her secret to Flora, and that she would therefore do so now with Flora's permission. Receiving an encouraging answer, she condensed the narrative of her life into a few scanty words about herself, and a glowing eulogy upon her father, and Flora took it all in with a natural tenderness that quite understood it, and in which there was no incoherence. When dinner-time came, Flora drew the arm of her new charge through hers, and led her downstairs, and presented her to the patriarch and Mr. Panks, who were already in the dining-room waiting to begin. Mr. F.'s aunt was, for the time, laid up in ordinary in her chamber. By those gentlemen she was received according to their characters, the patriarch appearing to do her some inestimable service in saying that he was glad to see her, glad to see her, and Mr. Panks blowing off his favourite sound as a salute. In that new presence she would have been bashful enough under any circumstances, and particularly under Flora's insisting on her drinking a glass of wine, and eating of the best that there was, but her constraint was greatly increased by Mr. Panks. The demeanour of that gentleman first suggested to her mind that he might be a taker of likenesses, so intently did he look at her, and so frequently did he glance at the little notebook by his side. Observing that he made no sketch, however, and that he talked about business only, she began to have suspicions that he represented some creditor of her father's, the balance due to whom was noted in that pocket-volume. Regarded from this point of view, Mr. Panks's puffings expressed injury and impatience, and each of his louder snorts became a demand for payment. But here again she was undeceived by anomalous and incongruous conduct on the part of Mr. Panks himself. She had left the table half an hour, and was at work alone. Flora had gone to lie down in the next room, concurrently with which retirement a smell of something to drink had broken out in the house. The patriarch was fast asleep, with his philanthropic mouth open under a yellow pocket-handkerchief in the dining-room. 
At this quiet time, Mr. Pancks softly appeared before her, urbanely nodding. "'Find it a little dull, Miss Dorrit?' inquired Pancks in a low voice. Uh, "'No, thank you, sir,' said Little Dorrit. "'Busy, I see,' observed Mr. Pancks, stealing into the room by inches. "'What are those now, Miss Dorrit?' "'Handkerchiefs.' "'Are they, though?' said Pancks. "'I shouldn't have thought it.' Not in the least looking at them, but looking at Little Dorrit. "'Perhaps you wonder who I am. Shall I tell you? I'm a fortune-teller.' Little Dorrit now began to think he was mad. "'I belong, body and soul, to my proprietor,' said Pancks. "'You saw my proprietor having his dinner below. But I do a little in the other way, sometimes privately, very privately, Miss Dorrit.' Little Dorrit looked at him doubtfully, and not without alarm. "'I wish you'd show me the palm of your hand,' said Pancks. "'I should like to have a look at it.' "'Don't let me be troublesome.' He was so far troublesome that he was not at all wanted there. But she laid her work in her lap for a moment, and held out her left hand with her thimble on it. "'Years of toil, eh?' said Pancks, softly, touching it with his blunt forefinger. "'But what else are we made for?' "'Nothing. Hello?' Looking into the lines. "'What's this, with bars? It's a college.' And what's this, with a grey gown, and a black velvet cap? It's a father. And what's this, with a clarionet? It's an uncle. And what's this, in dancing shoes? It's a sister. And what's this, straggling about in an idle sort of a way? It's a brother. And what's this, thinking for them all? Why, this is you, Miss Dorrit. Her eyes met his, as she looked up wonderingly, into his face. And she thought that although his were sharp eyes, he was a brighter and gentler-looking man than she had supposed at dinner. His eyes were on her hand again directly, and her opportunity of confirming or correcting the impression was gone. "'Now the deuce is in it,' muttered Pancks, tracing out a line in her hand with his clumsy finger. "'If this isn't me in the corner here, what do I want here?' What's behind me? He carried his finger slowly down to the wrist, and round the wrist, and affected to look at the back of the hand for what was behind him. "'Is it any harm?' asked Little Dorrit, smiling. "'Deuce a bit,' said Pancks. "'What do you think it's worth?' "'I ought to ask you that. I am not the fortune-teller.' "'True,' said Pancks. "'What's it worth?' "'You shall live to see, Miss Dorrit.' Releasing the hand by slow degrees, he drew all his fingers through his prongs of hair, so that they stood up in their most portentous manner, and repeated slowly, "'Remember what I say, Miss Dorrit. You shall live to see.' She could not help showing that she was much surprised, if it were only by his knowing so much about her. "'Ah, that's it.' said Pancks, pointing at her. "'Miss Dorrit, not that, ever!' More surprised than before, and a little more frightened, she looked to him for an explanation of his last words. "'Not that!' said Pancks, making with great seriousness an imitation of a surprised look and manner that appeared to be unintentionally grotesque. "'Don't do that! Never on seeing me, no matter when, no matter where. I am nobody.' 
don't take on to mind me don't mention me take no notice will you agree miss dorrit i hardly know what to say returned little dorrit quite astounded why because i'm a fortune teller pancks the gipsy i haven't told you so much of your fortune yet miss dorrit as to tell you what's behind me on that little hand i told you you shall live to see is it agreed miss dorrit agreed that i am I am to to take no notice of me away from here unless i take on first not to mind me when i come and go it's very easy i am no loss i am not handsome i'm not good company i'm only my proprietor's grubber you need do no more than think ah pancks the gipsy at his fortune-telling he'll tell the rest of my fortune one day i shall live to know it is it agreed miss dorrit I yes faltered little dorrit whom he greatly confused i suppose so while you do no harm good Mr. Pancks glanced at the wall of the adjoining room, and stooped forward. "'Honest creature, woman of capital points, but heedless and a loose talker, Miss Dorrit.' With that he rubbed his hands, as if the interview had been very satisfactory to him, panted away to the door, and urbanely nodded himself out again. If little Dorrit were beyond measure perplexed by this curious conduct on the part of her new acquaintance, and by finding herself involved in this singular treaty her perplexity was not diminished by ensuing circumstances besides that mr pancks took every opportunity afforded him in mr casby's house of significantly glancing at her and snorting at her which was not much after what he had done already he began to pervade her daily life she saw him in the street constantly when she went to mr casby's he was always there when she went to mrs clennam's he came there on any pretence as if to keep her in his sight a week had not gone by when she found him to her astonishment in the lodge one night conversing with the turnkey on duty and to all appearance one of his familiar companions her next surprise was to find him equally at his ease within the prison to hear of his presenting himself among the visitors at her father's sunday levee to see him arm in arm with a collegiate friend about the yard to learn from fame that he had greatly distinguished himself one evening at the social club that held its meetings in the snuggery by addressing a speech to the members of the institution singing a song and treating the company to five gallons of ale report madly added a bushel of shrimps the effect on mr plornish of such of these phenomena as he became an eye-witness of in his faithful visits made an impression on little dorrit only second to that produced by the phenomena themselves they seemed to gag and bind him he could only stare and sometimes weakly mutter that it wouldn't be believed down bleeding heart yard that this was pancks but he never said a word more or made a sign more even to little dorrit mr pancks crowned his mysteries by making himself acquainted with tip in some unknown manner and taking a sunday saunter into the college on that gentleman's arm throughout he never took any notice of little dorrit save once or twice when he happened to come close to her, and there was no one very near, on which occasions he said in passing, with a friendly look and a puff of encouragement, "'Panks, a gypsy, fortune-telling!' Little Dorrit worked and strove as usual, 
wondering at all this, but keeping her wonder as she had from her earliest years kept many heavier loads in her own breast. A change had stolen, and was stealing yet, over the patient heart. Every day found her something more retiring than the day before. To pass in and out of the prison unnoticed, and elsewhere to be overlooked and forgotten, were, for herself, her chief desires. To her own room, too, strangely assorted room for her delicate youth and character, she was glad to retreat as often as she could, without desertion of any duty. There were afternoon times when she was unemployed, when visitors dropped in to play a hand at cards with her father, when she could be spared, and was better away. Then she would flit along the yard, climb the scores of stairs that led to her room, and take her seat at the window. Many combinations did those spikes upon the wall assume, many light shapes did the strong iron weave itself into, many golden touches fell upon the rust, while little Dorrit sat there musing. New zigzags sprung into the cruel pattern sometimes, when she saw it through a burst of tears, but beautified or hardened still, always over it and under it and through it. She was fain to look in her solitude, seeing everything with that ineffaceable brand. A garret, and a marshalsea garret, without compromise, was little Dorrit's room. Beautifully kept, it was ugly in itself, and had little but cleanliness and air to set it off for what embellishment she had ever been able to buy, had gone to her father's room. Howbeit, for this poor place she showed an increasing love, and to sit in it alone became her favourite rest. Insomuch that on a certain afternoon during the Panks' mysteries, when she was seated at her window, and heard Maggie's well-known step coming up the stairs, she was very much disturbed by the apprehension of being summoned away. As Maggie's step came higher up and nearer, she trembled and faltered, and it was as much as she could do to speak when Maggie at length appeared. "'Please, little mother,' said Maggie, panting for breath, "'you must come down and see him. He's here.' "'Who, Maggie?' "'Who? Of course. Mr. Clennam. He's in your father's room, and he says to me, Maggie.' "'Will you be so kind and go and say it's only me?' "'I am not very well, Maggie. I had better not go. I am going to lie down. See? I lie down now, to ease my head. Say, with my grateful regard, that you left me so, or I would have come.' "'Well, it aren't very polite, though, little mother.' said the staring Maggie, to turn your face away, neither. Maggie was very susceptible to personal slights, and very ingenious in inventing them. Putting both your hands afore your face, too, she went on. If you can't bear the looks of a poor thing, it will be better to tell her so at once, and not go and shut her out like that, hurting her feelings, and breaking her heart at ten year old, poor thing. It's to ease my head, Maggie. Well, and if you cry to ease your head, little mother, let me cry too. Don't go and have all the crying to yourself expostulated Maggie. That aunt not being greedy, and immediately began to blubber. It was with some difficulty that she could be induced to go back with the excuse, but the promise of being told a story, 
of old her great delight, on condition that she concentrated her faculties upon the errand, and left her little mistress to herself for an hour longer, combined with the misgiving on Maggie's part that she had left her good temper at the bottom of the staircase, prevailed. So away she went, muttering her message all the way to keep it in her mind, and, at the appointed time, came back. "'He was very sorry, I can tell you,' she announced, "'and wanted to send a doctor. "'And he's coming again to-morrow, he is, "'and I don't think he'll have a good sleep to-night "'along of hearing about your head, little mother. "'Oh, my! Ain't you been a-crying?' "'I think I have a little, Maggie. "'A little? Oh!' "'But it's all over now all over for good, Maggie, and my head is much better and cooler, and I am quite comfortable. I am very glad I did not go down." Her great staring child tenderly embraced her, and having smoothed her hair, and bathed her forehead and eyes with cold water, offices in which her awkward hands became skilful, hugged her again, exulted in her brighter looks, and stationed her in her chair by the window. Over against this chair, Maggie, with apoplectic exertions that were not at all required, dragged the box, which was her seat on story-telling occasions, sat down upon it, hugged her own knees, and said, with a voracious appetite for stories, and with widely opened eyes, "'Now, little mother, let's have a good'n.' "'What shall it be about, Maggie?' "'Oh, let's have a princess,' said Maggie, "'and let her be a regular one.' "'Beyond all belief, you know?' Little Dorrit considered for a moment, and with a rather sad smile upon her face, which was flushed by the sunset, began, "'Maggie, there was once upon a time a fine king, and he had everything he could wish for, and a great deal more. He had gold and silver, diamonds and rubies, riches of every kind. He had palaces, and he had hospitals.' interposed Maggie, still nursing her knees. "'Let him have hospitals, because they're so comfortable. Hospitals, with lots of chicken.' "'Yes, he had plenty of them, and he had plenty of everything. "'Plenty of baked potatoes, for instance,' said Maggie. "'Plenty of everything.' "'Lor!' chuckled Maggie, giving her knees a hug. "'Wasn't it prime?' "'This king had a daughter.' who was the wisest and most beautiful princess that ever was seen. When she was a child, she understood all her lessons before her masters taught them to her. And when she was grown up, she was the wonder of the world. Now, near the palace where this princess lived, there was a cottage in which there was a poor little tiny woman who lived all alone by herself. "'An old woman,' said Maggie, with an unctuous smack of her lips, "'No, not an old woman, quite a young one. "'I wonder she warn't afraid,' said Maggie. "'Go on, please.' "'The princess passed the cottage nearly every day, "'and whenever she went by in her beautiful carriage, "'she saw the poor tiny woman spinning at her wheel, "'and she looked at the tiny woman, "'and the tiny woman looked at her. "'So one day she stopped the coachman a little way from the cottage, and got out and walked on and peeped in at the door and there as usual was the tiny woman spinning at her wheel and she looked at the princess 
and the princess looked at her. "'Like trying to stare one another out,' said Maggie. "'Please go on, little mother.' The princess was such a wonderful princess that she had the power of knowing secrets, and she said to the tiny woman, "'Why do you keep it there?' This showed her directly that the princess knew why she lived all alone by herself, spinning at her wheel, and she kneeled down at the princess's feet, and asked her never to betray her. So the princess said, "'I never will betray you. Let me see it.' So the tiny woman closed the shutter of the cottage window, and fastened the door, and trembling from head to foot for fear that any one should suspect her, opened a very secret place, and showed the princess a shadow. "'Law!' said Maggie. It was the shadow of someone who had gone by long before, of someone who had gone on far away, quite out of reach, never, never to come back. It was bright to look at, and when the tiny woman showed it to the princess, she was proud of it with all her heart, as a great, great treasure. When the princess had considered it a little while, she said to the tiny woman, "'And you keep watch over this every day?' And she cast down her eyes and whispered, "'Yes.' Then the princess said, "'Remind me why?' To which the other replied that no one so good and kind had ever passed that way, and that was why in the beginning." She said, too, that nobody missed it, that nobody was the worse for it, that someone had gone on to those who were expecting him. "'Someone was a man, then?' interposed Maggie. Little Dorrit timidly said yes, she believed so, and resumed. "'Had gone on to those who were expecting him, and that this remembrance was stolen or kept back from nobody.' The princess made answer— Ah, but when the cottager died, it would be discovered there. The tiny woman told her, No, when that time came, it would sink quietly into her own grave, and would never be found. Well, to be sure, said Maggie. Go on, please. The princess was very much astonished to hear this, as you may suppose, Maggie. And well she might be, said Maggie. So she resolved to watch the tiny woman, and see what came of it. Every day she drove in her beautiful carriage by the cottage door, and there she saw the tiny woman, always alone by herself, spinning at her wheel. And she looked at the tiny woman, and the tiny woman looked at her. At last, one day, the wheel was still, and the tiny woman was not to be seen. When the princess made inquiries why the wheel had stopped, and where the tiny woman was, she was informed that the wheel had stopped because there was nobody to turn it, the tiny woman being dead. "'They ought to have took her to the hospital,' said Maggie, "'and then she'd have got over it.' The princess, after crying a very little for the loss of the tiny woman, dried her eyes and got out of her carriage at the place where she had stopped it before, and went to the cottage, and peeped in at the door. There was nobody to look at her now, and nobody for her to look at, so she went in at once to search for the treasured shadow. But there was no sign of it to be found anywhere, and then she knew 
that the tiny woman had told her the truth, and that it would never give anybody any trouble, and that it had sunk quietly into her own grave, and that she and it were at rest together. That's all, Maggie. The sunset flush was so bright on little Dorrit's face, when she came thus to the end of her story, that she interposed her hand to shade it. "'Had she got to be old?' Maggie asked. "'The tiny woman?' "'Ah—I don't know,' said little Dorrit. "'But it would have been just the same if she had been ever so old.' "'Would it, Raleigh?' said Maggie. "'Well, I suppose it would, though,' and sat staring and ruminating. She sat so long with her eyes wide open, that at length little Dorrit, to entice her from her box, rose and looked out of window. As she glanced down into the yard, she saw Panks come in, and leer up with the corner of his eye as he went by. "'Who's he, little mother?' said Maggie. She had joined her at the window, and was leaning on her shoulder. "'I see him come in and out often.' "'I have heard him called a fortune-teller,' said Little Dorrit. "'But I doubt if he could tell many people even their past or present fortunes.' "'Couldn't have told the princess hers,' said Maggie. Little Dorrit, looking musingly down into the dark valley of the prison, shook her head. "'Nor the tiny woman hers,' said Maggie. "'No,' said Little Dorrit with the sunset very bright upon her. But let us come away from the window. End of Book One Chapter Twenty Four Book One Chapter Twenty Five of Little Dorrit This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One Poverty. Chapter Twenty Five Conspirators and Others. The private residence of Mr. Pancks was in Pentonville, where he lodged on the second floor of a professional gentleman in an extremely small way, who had an inner door within the street door, poised on a spring and starting open with a click like a trap and who wrote up in the fanlight, Rug, General Agent, Accountant, Debts Recovered. This scroll, majestic in its severe simplicity, illuminated a little slip of front garden, abutting on the thirsty high-road, where a few of the dustiest of leaves hung their dismal heads and led a life of choking. A professor of writing occupied the first floor, and enlivened the garden railings with glass cases containing choice examples of what his pupils had been before six lessons, and while the whole of his young family shook the table, and what they had become after six lessons, when the young family was under restraint. The tenancy of Mr. Panks was limited to one airy bedroom. He, covenanting and agreeing with Mr. Rugg, his landlord, that in consideration of a certain scale of payments accurately defined, and on certain verbal notice duly given, he should be at liberty to elect to share the Sunday breakfast, dinner, tea, or supper, or each, or any, or all, of those repasts or meals of Mr. and Miss Rugg, his daughter, in the back parlour. 
Miss Rugg was a lady of a little property, which she had acquired, together with much distinction in the neighbourhood, by having her heart severely lacerated, and her feelings mangled, by a middle-aged baker resident in the vicinity, against whom she had, by the agency of Mr. Rugg, found it necessary to proceed at law to recover damages for a breach of promise of marriage. The baker, having been, by the counsel for Miss Rugg, witheringly denounced on that occasion up to the full amount of twenty guineas, at the rate of about eighteen pence an epithet, and having been cast in corresponding damages, still suffered occasional persecution from the youth of Pentonville. But Miss Rugg, environed by the majesty of the law, and having her damages invested in the public securities, was regarded with consideration. In the society of Mr. Rugg, who had a round white visage, as if all his blushes had been drawn out of him long ago, and who had a ragged yellow head, like a worn-out hearth-broom. And in the society of Miss Rugg, who had little nankeen spots, like shirt-buttons, all over her face, and whose own yellow tresses were rather scrubby than luxuriant, Mr. Pancks had usually dined on Sundays for some years, and had twice a week, or so, enjoyed an evening collation of bread, Dutch cheese, and porter. Mr. Pancks was one of the very few marriageable men for whom Miss Rugg had no terrors, the argument with which he reassured himself being twofold, that is to say, firstly, that it wouldn't do twice, and secondly, that he wasn't worth it. Fortified within this double armour, Mr. Pancks snorted at Miss Rugg on easy terms. Up to this time Mr. Pancks had transacted little or no business at his quarters in Pentonville, except in the sleeping line. But now that he had become a fortune-teller, he was often closeted after midnight with Mr. Rugg in his little front-parlour office, and even after those untimely hours burnt tallow in his bedroom. Though his duties, as his proprietor's grubber, were in no wise lessened, and though that service bore no greater resemblance to a bed of roses than was to be discovered in its many thorns, some new branch of industry made a constant demand upon him. When he cast off the patriarch at night, it was only to take an anonymous craft in tow, and labour away afresh in other waters. The advance from a personal acquaintance with the elder Mr. Chivery, to an introduction to his amiable wife and disconsolate son, may have been easy, but easy or not, Mr. Pancks soon made it. He nestled in the bosom of the tobacco business within a week or two after his first appearance in the college, and particularly addressed himself to the cultivation of a good understanding with young John. In this endeavour he so prospered as to lure that pining shepherd forth from the groves, and tempt him to undertake mysterious missions, on which he began to disappear at uncertain intervals for as long a space as two or three days together. The prudent Mrs. Chivery, who wondered greatly at this change, would have protested against it as detrimental to the highland typification on the doorpost, but for two forcible reasons. One, that her John was roused to take strong interest in the business which these starts were supposed to advance, and this she held to be good for his drooping spirits. The other, that Mr. Pancks confidentially agreed to pay her, for the occupation of her son's time, at the handsome rate of seven and sixpence per day. The proposal originated with himself, and was couched in the pithy terms. "'If your John is weak enough, ma'am, not to take it, that is no reason why you should be, don't you see? So, quite between ourselves, ma'am, 
business being business, here it is. What Mr. Chivery thought of these things, or how much or how little he knew about them, was never gathered from himself. It has been already remarked that he was a man of few words, and it may be here observed that he had imbibed a professional habit of locking everything up. He locked himself up, as carefully as he locked up the Marshalsea debtors. Even his custom of bolting his meals may have been a part of an uniform whole, but there is no question that, as to all other purposes, he kept his mouth as he kept the Marshalsea door. He never opened it without occasion. When it was necessary to let anything out, he opened it a little way, held it open just as long as sufficed for the purpose, and locked it again. Even as he would be sparing of his trouble at the Marshalsea door, and would keep a visitor who wanted to go out, waiting for a few moments, if he saw another visitor coming down the yard, so that one turn of the key should suffice for both. Similarly, he would often reserve a remark, if he perceived another on its way to his lips, and would deliver himself of the two together. As to any key to his inner knowledge being to be found in his face, the Marshalsea key was as legible as an index to the individual characters and histories upon which it was turned. That Mr. Pancks should be moved to invite any one to dinner at Pentonville was an unprecedented fact in his calendar. But he invited young John to dinner, and even brought him within range of the dangerous, because expensive, fascinations of Miss Rugg. The banquet was appointed for a Sunday, and Miss Rugg, with her own hands, stuffed a leg of mutton with oysters on the occasion, and sent it to the baker's—not THE baker's, but an opposition establishment. Provision of oranges, apples, and nuts was also made, and rum was brought home by Mr. Pancks on Saturday night to gladden the visitor's heart. The store of creature comforts was not the chief part of the visitor's reception. Its special feature was a foregone family confidence and sympathy. When young John appeared at half-past one, without the ivory hand and waistcoat of golden sprigs, the sun shorn of his beams by disastrous clouds, Mr. Pancks presented him to the yellow-haired rugs as the young man he had so often mentioned who loved Miss Dorrit. "'I am glad,' said Mr. Rugg, challenging him specially in that character to have the distinguished gratification of making your acquaintance, sir. Your feelings do you honour. You are young. May you never outlive your feelings. If I was to outlive my own feelings, sir, said Mr. Rugg, who was a man of many words, and was considered to possess a remarkably good address, if I was to outlive my own feelings, I'd leave fifty pound in my will to the man who would put me out of existence. Miss Rugg heaved a sigh. My daughter, sir, said Mr. Rugg, Anastasia, you are no stranger to the state of this young man's affections. My daughter has had her trials, sir. Mr. Rugg might have used the word more pointedly in the singular number and she can feel for you." Young John, almost overwhelmed by the touching nature of this greeting, professed himself to that effect. "'What I envy you, sir, is,' said Mr. Rugg, "'allow me to take your hat. We are rather short of pegs. I'll put it in the corner. Nobody will tread on it there. What I envy you, sir, is the luxury of your own feelings. 
I belong to a profession in which that luxury is sometimes denied us.' Young John replied, with acknowledgments, that he only hoped he did what was right, and what showed how entirely he was devoted to Miss Dorrit. He wished to be unselfish, and he hoped he was. He wished to do anything, as laid in his power, to serve Miss Dorrit, altogether putting himself out of sight, and he hoped he did. It was but little that he could do, but he hoped he did it. "'Sir,' said Mr. Rugg, taking him by the hand, "'you are a young man that it does one good to come across. You are a young man that I should like to put in the witness-box, to humanise the minds of the legal profession. I hope you have brought your appetite with you, and intend to play a good knife and fork?' "'Thank you, sir,' returned young John. "'I don't eat much at present.' Mr. Rugg drew him a little apart. "'My daughter's case, sir,' said he, "'at the time when, in vindication of her outraged feelings and her sex, she became the plaintive in Rugg and Borkins. I suppose I could have put it in evidence, Mr. Chivery, if I had thought it worth my while, that the mount of solid sustenance my daughter consumed at that period did not exceed ten ounces per week.' Oh, think. "'I go a little beyond that, sir,' returned the other, hesitating, as if he confessed it with some shame. "'But in your case there's no fiend in human form,' said Mr. Rugg, with argumentative smile and action of hand. "'Observe, Mr. Chivery, no fiend in human form.' "'No, sir, certainly,' young John added with simplicity. "'I should be very sorry if there was.' "'The sentiment,' said Mr. Rugg, "'is what I should have expected from your known principles. It would affect my daughter greatly, sir, if she heard it, as I perceive the mutton. I am glad she didn't hear it. Mr. Panks, on this occasion, pray face me. My dear, face Mr. Chivery.' For what we are going to receive, may we, and Miss Dorrit, be truly thankful." But for a grave waggishness in Mr. Rugg's manner of delivering this introduction to the feast, it might have appeared that Miss Dorrit was expected to be one of the company. Panks recognised the sally in his usual way, and took in his provender in his usual way. Miss Rugg, perhaps making up some of her arrears, likewise took very kindly to the mutton, and it rapidly diminished to the bone. A bread-and-butter pudding entirely disappeared, and a considerable amount of cheese and radishes vanished by the same means. Then came the dessert. Then also, and before the broaching of the rum and water, came Mr. Panks's notebook. The ensuing business proceedings were brief, but curious, and rather in the nature of a conspiracy. Mr. Panks looked over his notebook, which was now getting full, studiously and picked out little extracts which he wrote on separate slips of paper on the table. Mr. Rugg, in the meanwhile, looking at him with close attention, and young John losing his uncollected eye in mists of meditation, when Mr. Panks, who supported the character of chief conspirator, had completed his extracts, he looked them over, corrected them, put up his notebook, and held them like a hand at cards. "'Now, there's a churchyard in Bedfordshire,' said Panks, who takes it?' "'I'll take it, sir,' returned Mr. Rugg, "'if no one bids.' Mr. Panks dealt him his card, and looked at his hand again. 
Now, there's an inquiry in York, said Pancks. Who takes it? I'm not good for York, said Mr. Rugg. Then perhaps, pursued Pancks, you'll be so obliging, John Chivery. Young John assenting, Pancks dealt him his card and consulted his hand again. There's a church in London, I may as well take that, and a family Bible, I may as well take that too. That's two to me. Two to me, repeated Pancks, breathing hard over his cards. Here's a clerk at Durham for you, John, and an old seafaring gentleman at Dunstable for you, Mr. Rugg. Two to me, was it? Yes, two to me. Here's a stone, three to me, and a stillborn baby, four to me, and all for the present told. When he had thus disposed of his cards, all being done very quietly and in a suppressed tone, Mr. Pancks puffed his way into his own breast-pocket and tugged out a canvas bag, from which, with a sparing hand, he told forth money for travelling expenses in two little portions. "'Cash goes out fast,' he said anxiously, as he pushed a portion to each of his male companions. "'Very fast!' "'I can only assure you, Mr. Pancks,' said young John, "'that I deeply regret my circumstances being such that I can't afford to pay my own charges, or that it's not advisable to allow me the time necessary for my doing the distances on foot, because nothing would give me greater satisfaction than to walk myself off my legs without fee or reward. This young man's disinterestedness appeared so very ludicrous in the eyes of Miss Rugg that she was obliged to effect a precipitate retirement from the company and to sit upon the stairs until she had had her laugh out. Meanwhile, Mr. Pancks, looking not without some pity at young John, slowly and thoughtfully twisted up his canvas bag as if he were wringing its neck. The lady, returning as he restored it to his pocket, mixed rum and water for the party, not forgetting her fair self, and handed to every one his glass. When all were supplied, Mr. Rugg rose, and silently, holding out his glass at arm's length above the centre of the table, by that gesture invited the other three to add theirs, and to unite in a general conspiratorial clink. The ceremony was effective up to a certain point, and would have been wholly so throughout, if Miss Rugg, as she raised her glass to her lips in completion of it, had not happened to look at young John, when she was again so overcome by the contemptible comicality of his disinterestedness as to splutter some ambrosial drops of rum and water around, and withdraw in confusion. Such was the dinner without precedent given by Pancks at Pentonville, and such was the busy and strange life Pancks led. The only waking moment at which he appeared to relax from his cares, and to recreate himself by going anywhere or saying anything without a pervading object, were when he showed a dawning interest in the lame foreigner with the stick down Bleeding Heart Yard. The foreigner, by name John Baptiste Cavalletto, they called him Mr. Baptist in the yard was such a chirping, easy, hopeful little fellow, that his attraction for Pancks was probably in the force of contrast. Solitary, weak, and scantily acquainted with the most necessary words of the only language in which he could communicate with the people about him, he went with the stream of his fortunes in a brisk way that was new in those parts. With little to eat, and less to drink, and nothing to wear but what he wore upon him, or had brought tied up in one of the smallest bundles that ever were seen, he put as bright a face upon it as if he were in the most flourishing circumstances when he first hobbled up and down the yard, humbly propitiating the general good-will with his white teeth. It was uphill work for a foreigner, lame or sound, to make his way with the bleeding hearts. 
In the first place, they were vaguely persuaded that every foreigner had a knife about him. In the second, they held it to be a sound constitutional national axiom they ought to go home to his own country. They never thought of inquiring how many of their own countrymen would be returned upon their hands from diverse parts of the world if the principle were generally recognised. They considered it particularly and peculiarly British. In the third place, they had a notion that it was a sort of divine visitation upon a foreigner that he was not an Englishman, and that all kinds of calamities happened to his country because it did things that England did not, and did not do things that England did. In this belief, to be sure, they had long been carefully trained by the barnacles and stilt-stalkings, who were always proclaiming to them, officially, that no country which failed to submit itself to those two large families could possibly hope to be under the protection of Providence, and who, when they believed it, disparaged them in private as the most prejudiced people under the sun. This, therefore, might be called a political position of the bleeding hearts, but they entertained other objections to having foreigners in the yard. They believed that foreigners were always badly off, and though they were as ill off themselves as they could desire to be, that did not diminish the force of the objection. They believed that foreigners were dragooned and bayoneted, and though they certainly got their own skulls promptly fractured if they showed any ill-humour, still it was with a blunt instrument, and that didn't count. They believed that foreigners were always immoral and though they had an occasional assize at home, and now and then a divorce case or so, that had nothing to do with it. They believed that foreigners had no independent spirit, as never being escorted to the pole in droves by Lord Decimus Tite Barnacle, with colours flying and the tune of Rule Britannia playing. Not to be tedious, they had many other beliefs of a similar kind. Against these obstacles, the lame foreigner with the stick had to make head as well as he could not absolutely single-handed, because Mr. Arthur Clennam had recommended him to the Plornishes, he lived at the top of the same house, but still at heavy odds. However, the bleeding hearts were kind hearts, and when they saw the little fellow cheerily limping about with a good-humoured face, doing no harm, drawing no knives, committing no outrageous immoralities, living chiefly on farinaceous and milk diet, and playing with Mrs. Plornish's children of an evening, they began to think that although he could never hope to be an Englishman, still it would be hard to visit that affliction on his head. They began to accommodate themselves to his level, calling him Mr. Baptist, but treating him like a baby, and laughing immoderately at his lively gestures and his childish English, more because he didn't mind it, and laughed too. They spoke to him in very loud voices, as if he were stone-deaf. They constructed sentences, by way of teaching him the language in its purity, such as were addressed by the savages to Captain Cook, or by Friday to Robinson Crusoe. Mrs. Plornish was particularly ingenious in this art, and attained so much celebrity for saying, "'Me ope you leg well soon,' that it was considered in the yard but a very short remove indeed from speaking Italian. Even Mrs. Plornish herself began to think that she had a natural call towards that language. As he became more popular, household objects were brought into requisition for his instruction in a copious vocabulary, and whenever he appeared in the yard, ladies would fly out at their doors, crying, "'Mr. Baptist, teapot! Mr. Baptist, dustpan! Mr. Baptist, flower-dredger!' 
Mr. Baptist, coffee, begin. At the same time, exhibiting those articles, and penetrating him with a sense of the appalling difficulties of the Anglo-Saxon tongue. It was in this stage of his progress, and in about the third week of his occupation, that Mr. Pancks's fancy became attracted by the little man. Mounting to his attic, attended by Mrs. Plornish as interpreter, he found Mr. Baptist with no furniture but his bed on the ground, a table, and a chair, carving with the aid of a few simple tools in the blithest way possible. "'Now, old chap,' said Mr. Pancks, "'pay up.' He had his money ready, folded in a scrap of paper, and laughingly handed it in. Then, with a free action, threw out as many fingers of his right hand as there were shillings, and made a cut crosswise in the air for an odd sixpence. "'Oh!' said Mr. Pancks, watching him wonderingly. "'That's it, is it? You're a quick customer. It's all right. I didn't expect to receive it, though.' Mrs. Plornish here interposed with great condescension, and explained to Mr. Baptist, "'E please, e glad get money.' The little man smiled and nodded. His bright face seemed uncommonly attractive to Mr. Pancks. "'How's he getting on in his limb?' he asked Mrs. Plornish. "'Oh, he's a deal better, sir,' said Mrs. Plornish. "'We expect next week he'll be able to leave off his stick entirely.' The opportunity being too favourable to be lost, Mrs. Plornish displayed her great accomplishment by explaining with pardonable pride to Mr. Baptist, "'E ope you leg well soon.' "'He's a merry fellow, too,' said Mr. Pancks, admiring him, as if he were a mechanical toy. "'How does he live?' "'Why, sir,' rejoined Mrs. Plornish, "'he turns out to have quite a power of carving them flowers that you see him at now.' Mr. Baptist, watching their faces as they spoke, held up his work. Mrs. Plornish interpreted in her Italian manner on behalf of Mr. Pancks. "'E, please, double good.' "'Can he live by that?' asked Mr. Pancks. "'He can live on very little, sir, and it is expected, as he will be able in time, to make a very good living. Mr. Clennam got it him to do, and gives him odd jobs besides, in at the works next door. Makes them for him, in short, when he knows he wants them. "'And what does he do with himself now, when he ain't hard at it?' said Mr. Pancks. "'Why, not much as yet, sir, on account, I suppose, of not being able to walk much. But he goes about the yard, and he chats without particular understanding or being understood, and he plays with the children, and he sits in the sun. He'll sit down anywhere, as if it was an armchair, and he'll sing, and he'll laugh.' "'Laugh?' echoed Mr. Pancks. "'He looks to me as if every tooth in his head was always laughing.' "'But whenever he gets to the top of the steps, at t'other end of the yard,' said Mrs. Plornish, "'he'll peep out in a curious way, so that some of us thinks he's peeping out towards where his own country is, and some of us thinks he's looking for somebody he don't want to see, and some of us—' "'Don't know what to think.' Mr. Baptist seemed to have a general understanding of what she said, or perhaps his quickness caught and applied her slight action of peeping. In any case, he closed his eyes, 
and tossed his head with the air of a man who had sufficient reasons for what he did, and said in his own tongue it didn't matter. Altro. What's altro? said Pancks. Um, it's a sort of a general kind of expression, sir, said Mrs. Plornish. Is it? said Pancks. Why then, altro to you, old chap. Good afternoon, altro. Mr. Baptist, in his vivacious way, repeating the word several times, Mr. Pancks, in his duller way, gave it him back once. From that time it became a frequent custom with Pancks the gypsy, as he went home jaded at night, to pass round by Bleeding Heart Yard, go quietly up the stairs, look in at Mr. Baptist's door, and, finding him in his room, to say, "'Hello, old chap! Altro!' to which Mr. Baptist would reply, with innumerable bright nods and smiles, "'Altro, signor! Altro, altro, altro!' After this highly condensed conversation, Mr. Panks would go his way, with an appearance of being lightened and refreshed. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-Five Book One, Chapter Twenty Six of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Twenty Six, Nobody's State of Mind. If Arthur Clennam had not arrived at that wise decision firmly to restrain himself from loving Pet, he would have lived on in a state of much perplexity involving difficult struggles with his own heart. Not the least of these would have been a contention always waging within it, between a tendency to dislike Mr. Henry Gowan, if not to regard him with positive repugnance, and a whisper that the inclination was unworthy. A generous nature is not prone to strong aversions, and is slow to admit them even dispassionately. But when it finds ill-will gaining upon it, and can discern between whiles, that its origin is not dispassionate, such a nature becomes distressed. Therefore Mr. Henry Gowan would have clouded Clennam's mind, and would have been far oftener present to it than more agreeable persons and subjects, but for the great prudence of his decision aforesaid. As it was, Mr. Gowan seemed transferred to Daniel Doyce's mind. At all events, it so happened that it usually fell to Mr. Doyce's turn, rather than to Clennam's, to speak of him in the friendly conversations they held together. These were of frequent occurrence now, as the two partners shared a portion of a roomy house in one of the grave old-fashioned city streets, lying not far from the Bank of England, by London Wall. Mr. Doyce had been to Twickenham to pass the day. Clennam had excused himself. Mr. Doyce was just come home. He put in his head at the door of Clennam's sitting-room to say good-night. "'Come in, come in,' said Clennam. "'I saw you a reading,' returned Doyce as he entered, "'and thought you might not care to be disturbed.' But for the notable resolution he had made, Clennam really might not have known what he had been reading, really might not have had his eyes upon the book for an hour past, though it lay open before him. He shut it up rather quickly. "'Are they well?' he asked. "'Yes.' said Doyce. They're all well. They're all well. 
Daniel had an old workman-like habit of carrying his pocket-handkerchief in his hat. He took it out and wiped his forehead with it, slowly repeating, "'They are all well. Miss Many, looking particularly well, I thought.' "'Any company at the cottage?' "'No, no company.' "'And how did you get on you four? asked Clennam gaily. "'There were five of us,' returned his partner. "'There was what's-his-name. He was there.' "'Who is he?' said Clennam. "'Mr. Henry Gowan?' "'Ah, to be sure,' cried Clennam, with unusual vivacity. "'Yes, I forgot him.' "'As I mentioned, you may remember,' said Daniel Doyce, "'he's always there on Sunday.' "'Yes, yes,' returned Clennam. "'I remember now.' Daniel Doyce, still wiping his forehead, ploddingly repeated, "'Yes, he was there. He was there. Oh, yes, he was there. And his dog. He was there, too.' "'Miss Meagles is quite attached to the dog,' observed Clennam. "'Quite so,' assented his partner. "'More attached to the dog than I am to the man.' "'You mean Mr—I mean Mr. Gowan, most decidedly,' said Daniel Doyce. There was a gap in the conversation, which Clennam devoted to winding up his watch. "'Perhaps you are a little hasty in your judgment,' he said. "'Our judgments, I am supposing, a general case.' "'Of course,' said Doyce. "'Ah—' uh, so liable to be influenced by many considerations which, almost without our knowing it, are unfair, that it is necessary to keep a guard upon them. For instance, Mr. Gowan, quietly said Doyce, upon whom the utterance of the name almost always devolved, is young and handsome, easy and quick, has talent, and has seen a good deal of various kinds of life. It might be difficult to give an unselfish reason for being prepossessed against him. "'Not difficult for me, I think, Clennam,' returned his partner. "'I see him bringing present anxiety, and I fear future sorrow, into my old friend's house. I see him wearing deeper lines into my old friend's face, the nearer he draws to, and the oftener he looks at the face of his daughter.' In short, I see him with a net about the pretty and affectionate creature, whom he will never make happy. "'We don't know,' said Clennam, almost in the tone of a man in pain, "'that he will not make her happy.' "'We don't know,' returned his partner, "'that the earth will last another a hundred years, but we think it highly probable.' "'Well, well,' said Clennam, "'we must be hopeful, and we must at least try to be.' if not generous, which in this case we have no opportunity of being, just. We will not disparage this gentleman, because he is successful in his addresses to the beautiful object of his ambition, and we will not question her natural right to bestow her love on one whom she finds worthy of it. "'Maybe, my friend,' said Doyce, "'maybe also that she is too young and petted, too confiding and inexperienced, to discriminate well.' "'That,' said Clennam, "'would be far beyond our power of correction.' Daniel Doyce shook his head gravely, and rejoined, "'I fear so.' "'Therefore, in a word,' said Clennam, 
we should make up our minds that it is not worthy of us to say any ill of Mr. Gowan. It would be a poor thing to gratify a prejudice against him, and I resolve, for my part, not to depreciate him. I am not quite so sure of myself, and therefore I reserve my privilege of objecting to him, returned the other. But, if I am not sure of myself, I am sure of you, Clennam, and I know what an upright man you are, and how much to be respected. Good night, my friend and partner. He shook his hand in saying this, as if there had been something serious at the bottom of their conversation, and they separated. By this time they had visited the family on several occasions, and had always observed that even a passing allusion to Mr. Henry Gowan, when he was not among them, brought back the cloud which had obscured Mr. Meagles's sunshine on the morning of the chance encounter at the ferry. If Clennam had ever admitted the forbidden passion into his breast, this period might have been a period of real trial, under the actual circumstances, doubtless it was nothing, nothing. Equally, if his heart had given entertainment to that prohibited guest, his silent fighting of his way through the mental condition of this period might have been a little meritorious. In the constant effort not to be betrayed into a new phase of the besetting sin of his experience, the pursuit of selfish objects by low and small means, and to hold instead to some high principle of honour and generosity, there might have been a little merit. In the resolution, not even to avoid Mr. Meagles's house, lest, in the selfish sparing of himself, he should bring any slight distress upon the daughter through making her the cause of an estrangement which he believed the father would regret, there might have been a little merit. In the modest truthfulness of always keeping in view the greater equality of Mr. Gowan's years, and the greater attractions of his person and manner, there might have been a little merit. In doing all this, and much more, in a perfectly unaffected way, and with a manful and composed constancy, while the pain within him, peculiar as his life and history, was very sharp, there might have been some quiet strength of character. But, after the resolution he had made, of course he could have no such merits as these, and such a state of mind was nobody's. Nobody's. Mr. Gowan made it no concern of his whether it was nobody's or somebody's. He preserved his perfect serenity of manner on all occasions, as if the possibility of Clennam's presuming to have debated the great question were too distant and ridiculous to be imagined. He had always an affability to bestow on Clennam, and an ease to treat him with, which might of itself, in the supposititious case of his not having taken that sagacious course, have been a very uncomfortable element in his state of mind. "'I quite regret you are not with us yesterday,' said Mr. Henry Gowan calling on Clennam the next morning. "'We had an agreeable day up the river there.' "'So I heard,' Arthur said. "'From your partner,' returned Henry Gowan. "'What a dear old fellow he is!' "'I have a great regard for him.' "'By Jove! He is the finest creature,' said Gowan. "'So fresh, so green, trust in such wonderful things.' Here was one of the many little rough points that had a tendency to grate on Clennam's hearing. He put it aside by merely repeating that he had a high regard for Mr. Doyce. "'He is charming. To see him mooning along to that time of life, laying down nothing by the way and picking up nothing by the way, is delightful. 
It warms a man, so unspoiled, so simple, such a good soul. Upon my life, Mr. Clennam, one feels desperately worldly and wicked in comparison with such an innocent creature. I speak for myself, let me add, without including you. You are genuine also. Thank you for the compliment, said Clennam, ill at ease. You are too, I hope. So-so, uh, rejoined the other, to be candid with you tolerably. I am not a great impostor. Buy one of my pictures, and I assure you, in confidence, it will not be worth the money. Buy one of another man's, any great professor who beats me hollow, and the chances are that the more you give him, the more he'll impose upon you. They all do it. All painters? Painters, writers, patriots, all the rest who have stands in the market. Give almost any man I know ten pounds, and he will impose upon you a corresponding extent, a thousand pounds to a corresponding extent, ten thousand pounds to a corresponding extent. So great the success, so great the imposition. But what a capital world it is! cried Gowan with warm enthusiasm. What a jolly, excellent, lovable world it is! I had rather thought, said Clennam, that the principle you mention was chiefly acted on by—by by the barnacles," interrupted Gowan, laughing, "'by the political gentlemen who condescend to keep the circumlocution office.' "'Ah! <laughs> Don't be hard upon the barnacles,' said Gowan, laughing afresh. "'They are darling fellows. Even poor little Clarence, the born idiot of the family, is the most agreeable and most endearing blockhead.' <laughs> and by jupiter with a kind of cleverness in him too that would astonish you it would very much said clennam dryly and after all cried gowan with that characteristic balancing of his which reduced everything in the wide world to the same light weight though i can't deny that the circumlocution office may ultimately shipwreck everybody and everything still that will probably not be in our time and it's a school for gentlemen it's a very dangerous, unsatisfactory, and expensive school to the people who pay to keep the pupils there, I am afraid," said Clennam, shaking his head. "'Ah! You are a terrible fellow,' returned Gowan airily. "'I can understand how you have frightened that little donkey, Clarence, the most estimable of moon-calves. I really love him, nearly out of his wits. But enough of him, and of all the rest of them. I want to present you to my mother, Mr. Clennam. Pray, do me the favour to give me the opportunity." In nobody's state of mind, there was nothing Clennam would have desired less, or would have been more at a loss how to avoid. My mother lives in a most primitive manner, down in that dreary red-brick dungeon at Hampton Court," said Gowan. If you would make your own appointment, suggest your own day for permitting me to take you there to dinner, you would be bored, and she would be charmed. Really, that's the state of the case. What could Clennam say after this? His retiring character included a great deal that was simple in the best sense, because unpractised and unused, and in his simplicity and modesty he could only say that he was happy to place himself at Mr. Gowan's disposal. Accordingly he said it, and the day was fixed. And a dreaded day it was on his part, and a very unwelcome day when it came, and they went down to Hampton Court together. The venerable inhabitants of that venerable pile seemed, in those times, to be encamped there like a sort of civilised gipsies. There was a temporary air about their establishments, as if they were going away the moment they could get anything better. 
there was also a dissatisfied air about themselves, as if they took it very ill that they had not already got something much better. Genteel blinds and makeshifts were more or less observable as soon as their doors were opened. Screens, not half high enough, which made dining-rooms out of arched passages, and warded off obscure corners where footboys slept at nights with their heads among the knives and forks. Curtains which called upon you to believe that they didn't hide anything. Panes of glass which requested you not to see them. Many objects of various forms, feigning to have no connection with their guilty secret, a bed. Disguised traps in walls, which were clearly coal-cellars. Affectations of no thoroughfares which were evidently doors to little kitchens. Mental reservations and artful mysteries grew out of these things. Callers, looking steadily into the eyes of their receivers, pretended not to smell cooking three feet off. People, confronting closets accidentally left open, pretended not to see bottles. Visitors with their heads against a partition of thin canvas, and a page and a young female at high words on the other side, made believe to be sitting in a primeval silence. There was no end to the small social accommodation bills of this nature, which the gipsies of gentility were constantly drawing upon, and accepting for, one another. Some of these bohemians were of an irritable temperament, as constantly soured and vexed by two mental trials. The first, the consciousness that they had never got enough out of the public. The second, the consciousness that the public were admitted into the building. Under the latter, great wrong, a few suffered dreadfully, particularly on Sundays, when they had for some time expected the earth to open and swallow the public up, but which desirable event had not yet occurred, in consequence of some reprehensible laxity in the arrangements of the universe. Mrs. Gowan's door was attended by a family servant of several years' standing, who had his own crow to pluck with the public concerning a situation in the post-office, which he had been for some time expecting, and to which he was not yet appointed. He perfectly knew that the public could never have got him in, but he grimly gratified himself with the idea that the public kept him out. Under the influence of this injury, and perhaps of some little straightness and irregularity in the matter of wages, he had grown neglectful of his person and morose in mind, and now beholding in Clennam one of the degraded body of his oppressors received him with ignominy. Mrs. Gowan, however, received him with condescension. He found her a courtly old lady, formerly a beauty, and still sufficiently well favoured to have dispensed with the powder on her nose and a certain impossible bloom under each eye. She was a little lofty with him. So was another old lady, dark-browed and high-nosed, and who must have had something real about her, or she could not have existed. But it was certainly not her hair, or her teeth, or her figure, or her complexion. So was a grey old gentleman of dignified and sullen appearance, both of whom had come to dinner. But as they had all been in the British Embassy way, in sundry parts of the earth, and as a British Embassy cannot better establish a character with the circumlocution office than by treating its compatriots with illimitable contempt, else it would become like the embassies of other countries, Clennam felt that on the whole they let him off lightly. The dignified old gentleman turned out to be Lord Lancaster Stiltstalking, who had been maintained by the Circumlocution Office for many years as a representative of the Britannic Majesty abroad. This noble refrigerator had iced several European courts in his time, and had done it with such complete success that the very name of Englishman yet struck cold to the stomachs of foreigners who had the distinguished honour of remembering him at a distance of a quarter of a century. 
He was now in retirement, and hence, in a ponderous white cravat like a stiff snowdrift, was so obliging as to shade the dinner. There was a whisper of the pervading bohemian character in the nomadic nature of the service and its curious races of plates and dishes, but the noble refrigerator, infinitely better than plate or porcelain, made it superb. He shaded the dinner, cooled the wines, chilled the gravy, and blighted the vegetables. There was only one other person in the room, a microscopically small footboy, who waited on the malevolent man who hadn't got into the post-office. Even this youth, if his jacket could have been unbuttoned and his heart laid bare, would have been seen as a distant adherent of the Barnacle family, all ready to aspire to a situation under government. Mrs. Gowan, with a gentle melancholy upon her, occasioned by her son's being reduced to court the swinish public as a follower of the low arts, instead of asserting his birthright and putting a ring through its nose as an acknowledged barnacle, headed the conversation at dinner on the evil days. It was then that Clennam learnt for the first time what little pivots this great world goes round upon. "'If John Barnacle,' said Mrs. Gowan, after the degeneracy of the times had been fully ascertained, if John Barnacle had but abandoned his most unfortunate idea of conciliating the mob, all would have been well, and I think the country would have been preserved. The old lady with the high nose assented, but added that if Augustus Stiltstalking had in a general way ordered the cavalry out with instructions to charge, she thought the country would have been preserved. The noble refrigerator assented, but added that if William Barnacle and Tudor Stiltstalking, when they came over to one another and formed their ever-memorable coalition, had boldly muzzled the newspapers, and rendered it penal for any editor-person to presume to discuss the conduct of any appointed authority abroad or at home, he thought the country would have been preserved. It was agreed that the country—another word for the Barnacles and Stiltstalkings—wanted preserving but how it came to want preserving was not so clear. It was only clear that the question was all about John Barnacle, Augustus Stiltstalking, William Barnacle, and Tudor Stiltstalking, Tom, Dick, or Harry Barnacle, or Stiltstalking, because there was nobody else but mob. And this was the feature of the conversation which impressed Clennam, as a man not used to it, very disagreeably, making him doubt if it were quite right to sit there, silently hearing a great nation narrowed to such little bounds. Remembering, however, that in the parliamentary debates, whether on the life of that nation's body or the life of its soul, the question was usually all about and between John Barnacle, Augustus Stiltstalking, William Barnacle, and Tudor Stiltstalking, Tom, Dick, or Harry Barnacle, or Stiltstalking, and nobody else. He said nothing on the part of Mob, bethinking himself that Mob was used to it. Mr. Henry Gowan seemed to have a malicious pleasure in playing off the three talkers against each other, and in seeing Clennam startled by what they said. Having a supreme contempt for the class that had thrown him off as for the class that had not taken him on, he had no personal disquiet in anything that passed. His healthy state of mind appeared even to derive a gratification from Clennam's position of embarrassment and isolation among the good company and if clennam had been in that condition with which nobody was incessantly contending he would have suspected it and would have struggled with the suspicion as a meanness even while he sat at the table in the course of a couple of hours the noble refrigerator at no time less than a hundred years behind the period got about five centuries in arrears 
and delivered solemn political oracles appropriate to that epoch. He finished by freezing a cup of tea for his own drinking, and retiring at his lowest temperature. Then Mrs. Gowan, who had been accustomed in her days of a vacant armchair beside her, to which to summon state to retain her devoted slaves, one by one, for short audience as marks of her especial favour, invited Clennam, with a turn of her fan, to approach the presence. He obeyed, and took the tripod recently vacated by Lord Lancaster Stiltstalking. "'Mr. Clennam,' said Mrs. Gowan, "'apart from the happiness I have in becoming known to you, though in this odiously inconvenient place a mere barrack, there is a subject on which I am dying to speak to you. It is the subject in connection with which my son first had, I believe, the pleasure of cultivating your acquaintance.' Clennam inclined his head, as a generally suitable reply, to what he did not yet quite understand. First, said Mrs. Gowan, "'now is she really pretty?' In nobody's difficulties he would have found it very difficult to answer, very difficult indeed to smile and say, "'Who?' "'Oh, you know,' she returned, "'this flame of Henry's, this unfortunate fancy.' "'There! If it is a point of honour that I should originate the name, Miss Mickles, Miggles?' "'Miss Meagles,' said Clennam, "'is very beautiful.' "'Men are so often mistaken on those points,' returned Mrs. Gowan, shaking her head, "'that I candidly confess to you I feel anything but sure of it even now, though it is something to have Henry corroborated with so much gravity and emphasis.' He picked the people up at Rome, I think. The phrase would have given nobody mortal offence. Clennam replied, Excuse me, I doubt if I understand your expression. Picked the people up, said Mrs. Gowan, tapping the sticks of her closed fan, a large green one which she used as a hand-screen on her little table. Came upon them, found them out, stumbled up against them. The people? "'Yes, the Miggles's people.' "'I really cannot say,' said Clennam, "'where my friend Mr. Meagles first presented Mr. Henry Gowne to his daughter. "'I am pretty sure he picked her up at Rome, but never mind where, somewhere. "'Now, this is entirely between ourselves. Is she very plebeian?' "'Really, ma'am,' returned Clennam, I am so undoubtedly plebeian myself, that I do not feel qualified to judge. "'Very neat,' said Mrs. Gowan, coolly unfurling her screen. "'Very happy, from which I infer that you secretly think her manner equal to her looks.' Clennam, after a moment's stiffness, bowed. "'That's comforting, and I hope you may be right. Did Henry tell me you had travelled with them?' "'I travelled with my friend Mr. Meagles and his wife and daughter during some months.' Nobody's heart might have been wrung by the remembrance. "'Really comforting, because you must have had a large experience of them. You see, Mr. Clennam, this thing has been going on for a long time, and I find no improvement in it. 
therefore to have the opportunity of speaking to one so well informed about it as yourself is an immense relief to me quite a boon quite a blessing i am sure pardon me returned clennam but i am not in mr henry gowan's confidence i am far from being so well informed as you suppose me to be your mistake makes my position a very delicate one no word on this topic has ever passed between mr henry gowan and myself mrs gowan glanced at the other end of the room where her son was playing écarte on a sofa with the old lady who was for a charge of cavalry not in his confidence no said mrs gowan no word has passed between you no that i can imagine but there are unexpressed confidences mr clennam and as you have been together intimately among these people i cannot doubt that a confidence of that sort exists in the present case perhaps you have heard that i have suffered the keenest distress of mind from henry's having taken to a pursuit which well shrugging her shoulders a very respectable pursuit i dare say and some artists are as artists quite superior persons still we never yet in our family have gone beyond an amateur and it is a pardonable weakness to feel a little as mrs gowan broke off to heave a sigh clennam however resolute to be magnanimous could not keep down the thought that there was mighty little danger of the family's ever going beyond an amateur even as it was henry the mother resumed is self-willed and resolute and as these people naturally strain every nerve to catch him i can entertain very little hope mr clennam that the thing will be broken off i apprehend the girl's fortune will be very small henry might have done much better there is scarcely anything to compensate for the connection still he acts for himself and if i find no improvement within a short time i see no other course than to resign myself and make the best of these people i am infinitely obliged to you for what you have told me as she shrugged her shoulders clennam stiffly bowed again with an uneasy flush upon his face and hesitation in his manner he then said in a still lower tone than he had adopted yet mrs gowan i scarcely know how to acquit myself of what i feel to be a duty and yet i must ask you for your kind consideration in attempting to discharge it a misconception on your part a very great misconception if i may venture to call it so seems to require settling right you have supposed mr meagles and his family to strain every nerve i think you said every nerve repeated mrs gowan looking at him in calm obstinacy with a green fan between her face and the fire to secure mr henry gowan the lady placidly assented now that is so far said arthur from being the case that i know mr meagles to be unhappy in this matter and to have interposed all reasonable obstacles with the hope of putting an end to it mrs gowan shut up her great green fan tapped him on the arm with it and tapped her smiling lips why of course said she just what i mean arthur watched her face for some explanation of what she did mean are you really serious mr clennam don't you see arthur did not see 
and said so. "'Why, don't I know, my son, and don't I know that this is exactly the way to hold him?' said Mrs. Gowan, contemptuously. "'And do not these Miggles people know it, at least as well as I? Oh, shrewd people, Mr. Clennam, evidently people of business. I believe Miggles belong to a bank. It ought to have been a very profitable bank, if he had much to do with its management. This is very well done indeed.' "'I beg and entreat you, ma'am,' Arthur interposed, "'Oh, Mr. Clennam, can you really be so credulous?' It made such a painful impression upon him to hear her talking in this haughty tone, and to see her patting her contemptuous lips with her fan, that he said very earnestly, "'Believe me, ma'am, this is unjust, a perfectly groundless suspicion.' "'Suspicion?' repeated Mrs. Gowan. "'Not a suspicion, Mr. Clennam.' certainty it is very knowingly done indeed and seems to have taken you in completely <laughs> she laughed and again sat tapping her lips with her fan and tossing her head as if she added don't tell me i know such people will do anything for the honour of such an alliance at this opportune moment the cards were thrown up and mr henry gowan came across the room saying "'Mother, if you can spare Mr. Clennam for this time, we have a long way to go, and it's getting late.' Mr. Clennam thereupon rose, as he had no choice but to do, and Mrs. Gowan showed him, to the last, the same look and the same tapped, contemptuous lips. "'You have had a portentously long audience of my mother,' said Gowan, as the door closed upon them. "'I fervently hope she has not bored you.' "'Not at all,' said Clennam. They had a little open phaeton for the journey, and were soon in it on the road home. Gowan, driving, lighted a cigar. Clennam declined one. Do what he would, he fell into such a mood of abstraction that Gowan said again, "'I am very much afraid my mother has bored you,' to which he roused himself to answer, "'Not at all,' and soon relapsed again. In that state of mind, which rendered nobody uneasy, his thoughtfulness would have turned principally on the man at his side. He would have thought of the morning when he first saw him rooting out the stones with his heel, and would have asked himself, Does he jerk me out of the path in the same careless, cruel way? He would have thought, had this introduction to his mother been brought about by him, because he knew what she would say, and that he could thus place his position before a rival and loftily warn him off, without himself reposing a word of confidence in him, he would have thought, even if there were no such design as that, had he brought him there to play with his repressed emotions, and torment him? The current of these meditations would have been stayed sometimes by a rush of shame, bearing a remonstrance to himself from his own open nature, representing that to shelter such suspicions, even for the passing moment, was not to hold the high, unenvious course he had resolved to keep. At those times the striving within him would have been hardest, and looking up and catching Gowan's eyes, he would have started as if he had done him an injury. Then, looking at the dark road and its uncertain objects, he would have gradually trailed off again into thinking, where are we driving, he and I, I wonder, on the darker road of life? How will it be with us, and with her, in the obscure distance? 
thinking of her, he would have been troubled anew with a reproachful misgiving that it was not even loyal to her to dislike him, and that in being so easily prejudiced against him he was less deserving of her than at first. "'You are evidently out of spirits,' said Gowan. "'I am very much afraid my mother must have bored you dreadfully.' "'Believe me, not at all,' said Clennam. "'It's nothing, nothing.' End of Book One, Chapter Twenty Six. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Hundred and Fifty. Then. Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.